there, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Before you dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know that our entrepreneur this month is a physician who is seeking to have the first prescription product available for people at risk of dying by suicide. If that topic is challenging for you, we understand you might not want to listen to this one. Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're talking with Seth Feuerstein, founder of We Therapeutics, a company developing a digital therapeutic that's going through the FDA process and seeking to be the first prescription product available for people at risk of dying by suicide. Psychiatrist and an attorney, Seth is also the executive director and founder of Yale School of Medicine's Center for Digital Health and Innovation. We'll talk about We Therapeutics as well as the other companies that he's founded. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eshift.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review our podcast, if you would, by scrolling to the bottom of this episode. We want more young entrepreneurs to find the podcast and be inspired to follow their dreams. So welcome, Seth. I'm so glad you could be here today. I'm glad to be here, too. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So why don't we talk a little bit first about, I know We Therapeutics is only your most recent company, but tell us a little bit about that company and what prompted you to start this company. Yeah. So in some ways, it was an accident. I had uh, had the good fortune of actually selling a company that I had started and ran in the digital health space to a, a large national health insurance company. And I had a really great job there. This is about eight years ago. And had purview over all kinds of aspects of this business, right? pharmacy management, radiology management, behavioral management, Medicaid, Medicare, all kinds of things. And I happened to see a research paper in the leading journal for psychiatrists called the American Journal of Psychiatry around reducing suicide attempts. And it really struck me. It challenged a lot of what I thought I understood about suicide. And in my job that I now had at this health insurer, I had a lot of data about suicide that I'll sort of repackage a little here, but suicide is the second leading cause of death for teens and young adults in the United States. In some states, it's actually now number one and has surpassed accidental death, which is you know the number one for teens and people into their late 20s. It's actually the third and fourth leading cause of death in the US for people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So basically, if you are of working age in the US, it is on average about the third leading killer. It's the only leading killer without a prescription product for the vast majority of people at risk. And so reading this paper, understanding more about it, even though you'd think I knew a lot about it as a psychiatrist who purportedly had good training and on faculty at a top medical center for psychiatry. And I started meeting with the researchers and had done a lot of work with software and felt like maybe software was the answer. And that's what really led me to go down that road, spend a couple of years to try to figure out how to do it and then starting a company to do those things. Wow. So how exactly will the product work? How will it be used by people or by doctors? Yeah. So the first thing is to know that most clinicians really worry about patients at risk of suicide. There are a lot of them. And as you mentioned in the introduction, there really is no prescription product for nearly all of them. I mean, there's, there's one product for a small group that have schizophrenia and schizoaffective, and it's, it helps, but it's not great at, at reducing suicidality. But the vast majority of people at risk, a large proportion actually don't have any other illness other than their suicidality. So about a third are believed to have major depressive disorder. 
and about a third have some other medical issues such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, a recent cancer diagnosis, some other medical condition that increases their risk of having a suicide attempt or dying by suicide. So in the U.S., there's about 1.5 million unique attempters each year, a little bit less than that, but about just for a round number, about 15 million people are believed to have suicidal ideation in the U.S. every year. So a lot of them show up in the healthcare system and clinicians really don't have anything to offer them. And I'll point out, it's often believed that if you refer them to mental health care, their suicide risk will go down. That is generally not the case. There are very specific interventions that are really a subspecialty and they're essentially unavailable. So as hard it is to get mental health care generally, it's essentially impossible to get what I read about in that research paper, which was kind of a very specific intervention delivered by a therapist that really a general therapist can't deliver because it's a subspecialty. But I had had a lot of success building software to facilitate therapy delivery and was convinced that I could do that with the right team. And I had worked with some really talented people, so got together with those researchers, and that's what led to the formation of the business. So is it something that people who have this risk would have on their phone or in some somehow they could access it, and if they were feeling distraught, how would they use it? Yeah, I'm going to take one step back and, and just for the audience say, it's really important to tease apart suicide attempts from suicidal thoughts from other diseases. And I think the way I'd encourage everyone to think about suicide attempts is similar to things like a cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, a cardiac arrhythmia, which I think people are familiar with, is a relatively spontaneous period of risk of sudden death. And in that case, there's an arrhythmia in the heart and people may die suddenly. And I think it really helps to think about the suicidal state of the brain as an arrhythmia-like state of the brain. It's not logical. In fact, it's illogical, which is why the attempt occurs for most people. And so by first separating the attempt-like state of the brain from other conditions, from the heart generally, it helps us focus in on that deadly period. And what this would be, what it already is actually, is an app that people would have on their phone. And it actually helps train their brain to prevent that arrhythmia-like state. And it uses a mix of elements to do that. Uh, ranging from, you know, if they've had a previous uh, attempt, really understanding what led to that attempt. You know, the brain is, is an organ system, just like all the other organ systems in our body. And whether it's blowing out your knee on the football field, whether it's getting melanoma because of trauma and exposure to the sun, whether it's internal bleeding from trauma to the liver, similarly, different traumas to the brain combined with other predisposing factors, whether it's genetics other diseases of the organ can increase the risk of that trauma leading to an event that causes organ failure. And it's really quite similar to other organs and organ failure. We tend to think about it differently. So in that framework, it really helps the person think about their brain, those periods where there hasn't been complete organ failure, but it's close to complete organ failure, and how to understand when you're approaching that state, similar to someone with an arrhythmia might describe chest palpitations, or we're monitoring them in some way. And we know there are certain things we can do to prevent sudden death or that arrhythmia from happening. Right. So it's something they would kind of use every day as a preventative, like just a way to train their brain to, as you said, like prevent these episodes from happening. Yeah, there are certainly things within it that they can use. I wouldn't say every day, but more than weekly to reinforce the, the kind of retraining of the brain to not end up in that state. 
there's a core element of it, which is an initial 10 to 12 weeks where the, the individual might spend, and I refer to them as patients because these are all patients in this particular case for, for this app. They'd spend 30 minutes to an hour each week kind of going deep into certain aspects of this process. Then there are certain elements that they can practice, which will improve the likelihood that they can successfully keep the training. What's remarkable is that the foundational research that our team did has shown that you can actually reduce potentially deadly events, which is how I refer to suicide attempts, by over 60%, which if you think about heart attacks or arrhythmias or cancer recurrence, reducing deadly episodes or potentially deadly episodes by more than half is just extremely uncommon in healthcare and it's an extraordinary outcome. And so if we can have consistent results like that with the app, it would be a, just a fundamental breakthrough. So while the studies really focused on delivering the intervention over 12 weeks, we believe that actually the reinforcing mechanisms of using the phone will actually improve those results over time. Wow. So people are already using this. Yeah. In I a mean, limited way. yeah. So we've got FDA trials going on. Then we have some trials going on that are independent of the FDA not by us. You know, there's, there's a trial being funded by the military. There's a trial being funded by a foundation. I mean, there are, there are other trials being led by other investigators that are not us, but it's our software that they're using. That's fascinating. And at this point, the idea is that this would be something that a doctor would prescribe for someone to use. But I wonder if you see a day where it will just be something that people could access on their own, or do you really need the guidance of a doctor to kind of help you use it in the correct way? Well, I'd say, first of all, there's no question that the combination of human and software is, is ideal so that, you know, having someone to ask questions to, to guide you is ideal. You know, as a technical matter, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA has said, this has to be regulated by them. So, you know, we are talking about one of the deadliest conditions in the United States uh, and globally, by the way, for which there are no other treatment options. It's not just, and, and the FDA has made it very clear that if you tried to market a product to prevent suicide attempts and sell it, they would probably send you a letter and say, that's very bad and you should stop doing that. I mean, they've, they've come out and said this explicitly about suicidality. I should add one other thing. I think it's important. I'm sorry, Kathy, to, to interrupt, but as a clinician, suicide is scary. It's scary for patients. It's scary for the people that love and care about them. And it's scary for the clinicians who desperately want to help them. And I think in this particular case, recommending something that hasn't really been, uh, you know, thoroughly at the highest level studied would take an already scary situation and, and create other uncertainty. So I actually agree with the FDA's opinion on this. I think it would be confusing if it wasn't regulated by the FDA for everyone involved. And I think prescribers and other, you know, if non-prescribers are eventually able to offer it, but I don't think that'll happen. But if prescribers are able to offer it, it'll give them more comfort and actually facilitate availability for the patients. And do the statistics show that most people who are considering suicide or make an attempt, that there has been some indication that this is like a possibility? I guess what I'm wondering, would most of the people who might be good candidates for to have the prescription already be talking to a doctor or are there just like a bunch of random people who just, this just happens to, you know? Yeah. A large proportion of them are in the healthcare system. You know, I can't rattle off all of the statistics, but what I can tell you is the majority of people who die by suicide are connected to the healthcare system. 
And a large percentage of them are actually complaining about things that can flag them. The healthcare system has historically not asked about suicidality universally for a couple of reasons. One of them is they don't know what to do with them if they say yes. There's no good availability of interventions. And then they very often send them to an emergency room or a hospital that doesn't have psychiatric beds or the right expertise to even evaluate them. But historically, we have not been great in healthcare has a long history of once we're comfortable offering a treatment, we get really good at screening. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's good that we don't ask everyone, but there is a fundamental question of like, wow, given the commonality, you know, how common this is, if we all of a sudden started screening everyone, it would overwhelm systems that actually don't have typically a good option available. And I'm not trying to say that a prescription option is the only good option, but I'm just saying that like, actually we don't have good options. We have inpatient units. Those inpatient units are generally not delivering care. And by general, I mean, they're not delivering care that reduces suicide attempts. In fact, people admitted for suicidality are at the highest risk in the weeks after discharge from an inpatient unit. Inpatient units protect them while they're there, but they don't really reduce the risk on discharge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Do you have a timeline for when you think this will be in approval and when it will be actually available for all kinds of people? Yeah, there are certain things I can say, and there are certain things I can't say because we're under the FDA. You know, we have clinical trials going on. I'd say our lead pivotal trial is going quite well based on the latest data. We're actually exceeding the timeline on which we thought it would occur, you know, that we'd have the final readouts and have approval, uh, assuming, of course, the study goes as we expect it to or hope it does. I think it's safe to say that over the next conservatively over the next 18 months. I'm optimistic it will be significantly sooner than that, but I would say conservatively over the next 18 months. And I'm delighted to say that we actually, you know, we've been really fortunate. I had several important sort of decision points about how to really solve part of this problem for people who are at risk of dying. Obviously, we're not going to eliminate all suicides. And one of those was to bring all the relevant stakeholders together. So we are a lot like a biotechnology company, although software is our primary intervention tool rather than a pill or a protein. I wanted to bring together nonprofits. I wanted to bring together digital health investors, the best software investors, but I also wanted to bring together the right participants who would cover this product immediately because any delay would mean deaths. And so I'm fortunate that CVS Health, which you know has a division that's a pharmacy benefit manager, has invested in the business and we get to spend time with them and they are keenly interested in helping facilitate access. And so as soon as we get FDA clearance to market the product, them and, and I'm in discussions with others as well to make sure that there isn't a lag between the data and the delivery of the product to people who really could benefit from it. And one interesting statistic, because I'm sure there are listeners who, are, who think about, oh, well, you know, suicide is a choice or the person was depressed. And, most people, as I mentioned earlier, they don't have depression. And the other thing I'll point out just to understand this sort of suicide mode of the brain that's arrhythmia-like is that if you talk to people who've had a serious suicide attempt, if they survive, they will mostly tell you they did not want to die, but that their brain, they did not see another path forward. And that's very different than a choice. A choice implies that you actually see two options. You know, it's kind of like if your knee fails on the football field, like, did you have a choice that the person would like hit you from the side and blow out your knee? No, that trauma led to the organ malfunctioning. And let's say your ACL tears. 
that's similarly the case with the brain, a mix of a variety of factors can lead it to enter this state, not unlike your laptop, which freezes up and you don't exactly know why, but it happens. And when that happens, it's extremely frustrating. It's an extension of your brain and it's really hard. And you, you kind of don't know what to do, right? You push that reset button on your laptop and you push it pretty hard. Like, I think if we've all done that, you're like pushing that button pretty hard. You're like, I don't really need to push that button hard, but like, you're so like stuck. And imagine that times a hundred for your brain. And the other thing I'll say, because it's, really easy for me and for all of us sitting here to be like, oh yeah, it's really common, but wouldn't happen to me. And you think that because your brain is functioning properly. But like, if I said to the listeners today and to you, like, do you put on sunscreen when you go out into the sun? You know, I've asked this many times to people and they always, now they're just being nice. Maybe they say yes, but I think most people will put on sunscreen. I will tell this to the listeners today you are much more likely to die by suicide regardless of how well your brain functions than you are from melanoma. Go look up the number of people who die from melanoma and who get diagnosed with melanoma, the skin cancer that most kills, and then look up suicide attempts and deaths. Last I checked, there's about 7,500 people a year in the US dying from melanoma. There's 50,000 dying by suicide. It's incredibly common, it's incredibly common. I've had the good fortune to get to know some large employers in this country. It's not uncommon at a large employer for 10% of their employee deaths to come from suicide. That's how common it is. I think then people don't know that or they don't talk about that or, you know, we don't talk not... about it in the same way. There's prejudice, there's shame, there's yeah. prejudice within the medical system. There's shame within the medical system. One of the tragic and fascinating things about suicidality is that the state of the system is one where if you talk to doctors about suicidal patients, they'll often say, well, why would you want those patients? Why would you want that liability? Right? And that's a really kind of tragic thing, but that's a reality. And that's because it feels unpredictable. We don't have good options like prescription products. And it's really unfortunate. You know, the barriers to care are significant. Another related sort of interesting and tragic reality is that if you had a cancer, and you go to an oncology clinic and you say, I have a tumor, the way it is in the healthcare system for psychiatry, for, for suicidality would be as if you go to the, the oncologist and they said to you, well, do you have a benign tumor or a malignant tumor? Because if you have a malignant tumor, you might die. And we don't treat those people here. And that's just really, really unfortunate. Right, right. So it sounds like there's some education that needs to happen with even some people in the medical community, or especially I would think with insurance companies. Do they, would they cover something like a digital therapeutic or is that another challenge that you have to go through? So a couple of things, education, absolutely. And I think the data, you know, strong data and an FDA approval create a great opportunity to educate. The good news that I would report is pretty much everyone, we pretty much were in what's called stealth mode for quite a while. And we, we now talk openly about our work, not entirely openly, as you can tell, but largely open. There are certain things I can't discuss, but almost universally, the reception is not just positive, it's enthusiastic. Everybody directly or indirectly knows somebody who died or almost died by suicide. Everybody. This is not a unique problem. The second is there are no options. And while there's a lot of press around health insurers, you know, coverage decisions, not covering things, pretty much everyone I talk to says, of course, we're going to cover this. Like this, you know, they, they do want to do what's in the best interest of their patients you know, that they cover. And 
digital therapeutics have a not such a clear pathway generally, but ultimately, and this probably wasn't obvious from this discussion, but I, you know, I sold a different type of digital therapeutic company that I would call an over-the-counter digital therapeutic company, kind of like we didn't make medical claims. We didn't go through the FDA. And, and it was more of the things for like mood and anxiety. And it scaled to about 100 million benefit lives. Like it's, it has a very big presence in the US healthcare system, actually, that software is still used. And I became an accidental health insurance executive through the sale of that business because they acquired the company and I went to work there for a few years. And I got to know a lot of people in the insurance industry. And these are good people, largely who want to do the right thing. In this particular case, the value is so high right? If we can reduce potentially deadly events, we're solving huge problems for lots of people. The other thing I'll point out, interestingly, and it's not why we did this, reducing suicide attempts saves a lot of money. So suicide attempts are very expensive and most of them are not deadly. So while a suicide attempt is the very best and strongest predictor of a future suicide attempt, most of them do not end in death. And each future suicide attempt is very expensive because there's usually an ambulance and an, in, an ER visit and an inpatient stay. So you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars per attempt. And if you can reduce attempts, there's also a financial incentive for the health insurers to pay for it. I mean, it feels like we could talk about this one company forever because it's fascinating. But I would like to talk a little bit about the other companies you'd founded. And I'd love to know, like, at what point in your career did you decide, or maybe you've always thought about the fact that you wanted to like have applications to what you're working on that are more broadly spread out than just your individual work with a specific patient. But what point did you decide, you know, I have these things I'm working on that could be companies or could be businesses. And tell us about those, com- like maybe the first company that you started and, and some of the others as well. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I wouldn't say I decided. I would say like, as life happens, it's hard to see this when you're in college. And I would say Cornell is a remarkable place. I think undervalued and, you know, as highly reputed as it is, I think it should be more highly reputed because there's so much you can do there. There's so much you can experience. I did not do those things and I did not experience all of those things. And I thought I was going to be a doctor. I actually went to medical school to be an internal medicine physician, uh, quickly figured out that wasn't really for me when I got on my rotations was always interested in the law. So I had, had pursued a combined degree in medicine and law. Everyone in my family has a law degree. So it was sort of natural. And it kind of was by accident. I think I probably lacked insight. I was not self-reflective. I was a kid. I mean, I, I didn't know. And fortunately, things came relatively easily. I mean, you know, I worked hard, but, but things came without too much friction for me. And I, it was really when I got to Yale. So I, I completed my training at Yale. And Yale was either the first or second NIH-funded department of psychiatry in the country, and tons of research going on. And and inefficiency always frustrated me, but like, it's not like I thought about being an entrepreneur, but people knew me said like, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. You're always this way. And I'm like, I didn't have insight into that. But when I got to Yale and I saw the exciting innovations that were happening, what was sort of hard to understand was why the same faculty member that was proving that something worked over in the lab here, I mean, something that you could use today in a clinic, but then they'd walk across to cover the ward and it was not available to the patients, right? So the research paper showed it. So this gap between what's referred to as bench to bedside, and I got really interested in that. And I just, it was a mix of right place, right time, hard work, hustle, so Yale had what's called a technology transfer office, which Cornell has, every university has them. And, you know, I realized 
I loved my clinical work, but it lacked certain aspects to it in terms of doing it forever full time that I just knew. And plus I had great insight from my wife and others, you know, like you're not going to be happy doing this, just this. And Yale had a lot of flexibility in certain ways. And I started to work with the technology transfer office while I was finishing my training in starting businesses and licensing products. And it was mostly at the time, biopharmaceuticals and diagnostics and took to that, got introduced to a venture capitalist, spent some time working with him. So you asked about the first business. Actually, the first business I helped start was that venture capital fund. I became the junior partner on the, at the small fund. Again, loved getting it started, loved that first year, but quickly, once it was sort of up and running, it kind of got rote. It wasn't as exciting to me. And did it specifically focus on health-related companies? Mostly. It was mostly, mostly focused on the kind of university-based early stage, which was a lot of healthcare stuff. And it was focused in New England. And that's when I better understood, like, I wanted to be deeper in the companies. I wanted to be really building things. And there was an opportunity at Yale. There was a, if you can believe it, like Dave, we're talking about digital health. Actually, the first project I did was a nanoparticle drug delivery company delivering chemotherapeutic agents and small interfering siRNA. And it was early days for that. This is going back you know, more than 15. This is quite a while ago, 20 years ago. And so it was more of a classic drug and drug delivery company, uh, but obviously a lot of time under the FDA, you know, I, that was most of what I did early was FDA based diagnostics and therapeutics. And I stumbled on software. The first software company I started, I had a significant health issue pop up actually kind of had me recalibrate things. And at the same time, this is around the time of the financial crisis, 08, 09. And at the same time, I got really interested in the over-prescribing problem, especially for psychiatric and addiction medications. And a lot of people would come to me for advice on who to see in the community for themselves or their spouse or their kid or their parent for psychiatry. But a lot of them really needed a good therapist. And so I got really interested in that problem. Like everyone was getting meds very often for things that the meds were not actually studied for, but just because it was easy to prescribe and hard to find a good therapist. And that's still going on, right? Oh, it's still going on. It's gotten worse. But I got really interested in that problem. And I got convinced there had been some interesting research overseas in using software to kind of digitize some of those aspects of therapy. This is fairly common today, but this was about 15 years ago we started this business. And we were very data-driven. You know, there were randomized controlled trials of these apps. Uh, they weren't apps. They were software-based, but they were not apps. And, and we had papers published in the top journals and went to market with that question you asked about, will people cover it? And a lot of people were skeptical. I actually remember a meeting with leadership from a health system where the chief psychologist got up and walked out of the meeting. This is in 2009, I think 2010, you know, she's like software will never replace us. I said, I, my goal is not to replace you. My goal is to get tools to let you focus on the more complex patients and for people who have very mild conditions. And you know, so that was sort of my transition to my first digital health company. I learned a ton about what does it take to get paid. We were able to get paid by some clinics, by a couple of health insurers, by we had, we got a good government contract. And then it was just acquired. One of the health insurer clients of ours approached us to buy the business, then sort of dropped on my lap towards the end of the deal that like, oh yeah, and you're coming to work here or else they don't, you know. So I say I became an accidental software architect and then an accidental software salesman. And then an accidental health insurance executive. So I would say my entrepreneurial journey 
I've been lucky enough to have the support to follow what I get passionate about. Enough people probably willing to be honest with me about what doesn't make sense in the way I'm planning to do that so that I can refine it. And then a wife who's patient and supportive while I try to do those things and ultimately kids who are that way. Cause now I have two, two boys who are college age, actually one graduated from Cornell from Cornell. Yes. Yay. And it was fabulous for him. He had tons of different job offers. It was great. Cornell uniquely offered exactly what he wanted to study. It was not an easy, not an easy major to, to find. And your other son is also here. Yeah. I have another son who's there. And by the way, neither of them, I mean, the older one came to us, after 10th grade uh, and was like, this is what I want to study. And here's like the, I don't know, 25 top programs in the country. And it turned out Cornell was like the perfect fit for him. And then the second one, I would say it was a mix of things. His brother was very happy. COVID was underway. So he had a super happy brother, an outstanding institution and some limitations on visiting and other things. And so despite his best efforts not to go where his brother was, <laughs> I would say the world aligned and he's incredibly happy. He's, he's, he's having a great time studying kind of computer and data science, that kind of stuff. Do you get a company to a certain point and then you feel like you're ready to start something else? It feels like you've had a bunch of different companies or would you, I mean, I know you're staring on as board members of a, a variety of them, but are, is there a point in a company's growth that you feel like, okay, well, it's going off. I'm going to, I'm going to start a new thing. I'd say not by design. So I think that, you know, I'm on a, a bunch of boards most of them, I'm actually an independent board member who was not actually a founder. So I like to get really involved and be helpful for entrepreneurs. And so I'm fortunate to do that work. And it's gone quite well. As an independent board member, I've helped companies get reimbursement for products. You know, I've had one went public, one was sold privately. And I find that it's almost like a mix of mentorship, guidance. And if I like the people and I like the product, that can be really exciting work. For the ones that I start, I guess it all depends. The one that we sold was, we weren't actually actively selling the business. We just were approached during a contract renegotiation for them to buy the business. And I'm happy to say we sold it almost 10 years ago. And that software is still the backbone for the behavioral health tools that that large national health insurer uses for tens of millions of people. You know, in the current situation, I think it depends on what is best for the business and its success is the way I think about it. So I run We Therapeutics because I'm passionate about it. I can keep costs down. I'm being honest, right? With, you know, like I can wear multiple hats, which keeps our burn down. We have investors. I consider myself a steward of their capital, as well as obviously I have a mission to accomplish. But I can be chief executive officer, chief medical officer, chief strategy officer. It saves a lot of money. And so as long as I think and the board agrees that I am the right steward and I have the time and the energy and the health to do that, I will do it. If I can be helpful with another company getting it started and being on the board or some other role and I have the time and can do that successfully, then I'll do it. And are you really interested in this point in your career in companies that really focus on some psychiatric related issues like addiction or suicide, or really there's a whole bunch of things that would interest you to work on? That is such a good question. So I get pulled I've been lucky to have, or fortunate to have great success in psychiatric companies. My first company, the drug one was not like, I think I'm a generalist, but I get pulled into CNS, psychiatric, neurologic a lot. Not all the boards I'm on are that way. I'm not intentionally focused in that area, but I would say I like 
complex, high value problems. I hate inefficiency. I hate when people aren't getting what they should, whether it's an employee who's got an inefficient process or a suicidal patient who's not getting access to care, right? Or a provider whose life is more miserable than it should be because of the software they're forced to use that's terrible and clunky or a health insurer that has you know outdated software. So I hate inefficiency. It happens that in a couple of the current cases, a lot of that collides with psychiatric care. And it's probably not a surprise to anyone listening to this because it's all over the news how the psychiatric system has been become so inefficient and so difficult for people to access care. So there's no question that's a high value area that I happen to know a lot about. So I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but I consider myself a generalist. The CEO of the company that I was the independent board member of that went public, I said to him, like, I keep, get, I keep getting pulled into psychiatric businesses. He said, you know, it's okay to be really good at something very specific. Just because you like to do more things, it's not a bad thing. Was, okay. That's interesting. So I want to talk a bit about your time at Cornell, although I know you said that you feel like you didn't experience perhaps everything you could have when you were a student here. And I know the bio major is not easy, so probably a lot of your time was spent actually studying. But can you talk a little bit about your own experience at Cornell and what is memorable to you and what kind of impact that had on, obviously, medical impact, but what other impacts it had on your life? I'm going to start by saying something that I don't think necessarily impacted me directly, but I've said to people since then, especially over the last few years when issues around diversity have become so forefront. Everyone quotes the Ezra Cornell, any person, any study, if I'm getting those four mm-hmm. words, right? Yep. I don't know if, yep. I, if, I, if I mess up four words, I probably, you know, shouldn't be talking about the school. No, but, you got it. You got it. But what's missed in that, and I really appreciate this now that I've been on the Yale campus for almost a quarter of a decade, is it meant a lot more. Cornell let Blacks and women in almost immediately. I don't remember the exact order, but it was like one year and two years. It was like yeah, right it's away. really quick, yep. And that's a long time ago. And so I think any person, any study meant a lot from the very beginning. You know, my freshman year roommate was a farmer from a family farm. There aren't people like that at Yale as a general rule. And they're everywhere at Cornell. And so, you know, first-generation students has been a thing at Cornell forever since it was founded. And so that fabric of the way the whole place operates is really special. And I didn't understand the grounding that that gave me until I was at places where it wasn't like that. You know, is it perfect? No. But was it uniquely at the forefront of issues that are everywhere today? I think it was actually. And so that's one thing that is abstract, but influenced everything for me and the people I got to know. I mean, I went to my roommate's wedding in a small church that was not air conditioned in a field. Like most people will never experience a wedding like that, right? I worked on his farm. And so that's, you know, remarkable. Those were remarkable. That's one example of remarkable experiences for me. I think that the resources, I don't think people realize how amazing they are. Like, I have the luxury of contrasting a very different campus because I've been at one for, you know, about 25 years now. And Cornell has these brilliant people. They work really hard, but they're like, they're real people. There's none of this ivory, you know, this tower of like, of ego and 
Uh, it really is quite different culturally than a lot of the other top places that one can go. The diversity of study around things, you know, like hospitality management and meteorology, they may feel somewhat random, but when you grow up and you leave, you realize they're everywhere. They're interwoven into life. I can tell you, you know what's not going to get replaced by artificial intelligence? Hospitality management. That's the whole point of the events, right? You need people to deal with humans in a hotel. Yeah, you can have robots serving food or whatever, but like ultimately those entire industries are built on the experience. And so these are things that are a mix of art and science and, and Cornell does them like nobody else. And just knowing people like that had a huge influence on me. Obviously, look, the bio program was amazing. I was really fortunate. I had amazing teachers and of course got to go to a lot of great hockey games. And if you want an example of Cordell at the forefront, think about red hot hockey at MSG, which didn't exist when I went to college there, but like a bunch of other Ivy League schools copy it now. You know, other schools try to set up games at Madison Square Garden now. And, you know, it's just one random narrow example of the different ways that Cornell really sort of has this kind of, in some ways, entrepreneurial spirit. Like it was really against the grain in the mid 1800s to admit blacks and women. Like, let's be honest. Yale University first started admitting women, I think in like the late 1960s, right? Like that's like a hundred years later. We're sorry for all the Yale people who might be listening to the podcast. I'm being honest. <laughs> it's not critical. Look, Yale's a great, is, was that too critical? I hope not. I mean, it's, no. you know, it's the only contrast I have. I mean, you know. right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's great. Are there any books that you've read that you feel like are really valuable or have been valuable or young entrepreneurs or someone wanting to start something might want to read? Yikes. I wish you had given me this question in advance so I could apply some thought, but what are a few that jump to mind? So first of all, a brilliant mentor of mine gave me a book. I feel like it was around 2004 called Fooled by Randomness. The author actually is now famous for a different book called The Black Swan, but Fooled by Randomness really is at the core of The Black Swan. It's a great book. And I think one of the things that young entrepreneurs in particular, but all of us in society have is a positive selection bias. We see these big stories about these big people doing big things. And we think like everyone goes out and raises a huge venture round and then they're a billionaire. That's just not true. And there's a lot of randomness. And so you can set yourself up for different types of success. And by the way, being a billionaire is not necessarily the right type of success. I was just using a random metric like that you would read about in the Wall Street Journal. Success is different for everybody what that means to them. But Fooled by Randomness, I thought was great. Another book that I would encourage people to read is actually by a professional poker player who's also a psychologist, and it's called Thinking in Bets. It's a pretty recent book. And what's so great about that book, I like books by people I agree with, I guess. The way they frame the topics are so ingenious. So Fooled by Randomness is an ingenious book. It's sort of narratives and stories that apply, but it's by a mathematician. So it's a really cool book. And then Thinking in bets, by the way, this poker pair is like one bracelets at the World Series of Poker and, all, and is a very bright psychologist. And so, you know, what she articulates is that we often spend so much of our time on the areas where we don't have certainty, but we're never going to have certainty. So you should just gather good data, apply odds and move on. And so it's really a great book, especially if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, because people often get stuck in analysis paralysis and they're wasting a tremendous amount of time. 
Oh, those are great. So is there anyone you can think of that you would mention as someone you admire, either in business or in healthcare or in whatever field? I think my parents. My parents worked really hard. They were both sort of public servant government employees in the end. My father was amazing. He was the first, first guy to go to college in his family, but he supported my mom's career. She went back to law school mid-career. And so, you know, it's sort of watching that growing up, that kind of partnership was really remarkable. And they were just amazing people. And even my brother, actually, who's a year older than me, and we're kind of like, almost like twins growing up because my mom had gone back to school. By the way, I did not appreciate them or that when I went to college. I think it was as I got older that I was like, wow, how did they do that? I mean, I have been blessed at the institutions I've been at to have amazing people to learn from. But I think I think my parents would be the two. So can you tell us a bit more about how people could find out? Is there a place that people could find out anything more about Awee Therapeutics? Yeah, we're starting to put out more information over time. We're gathering data from different studies. We don't put out a lot of information. You know, we are on LinkedIn. We have a website that has a little bit of information. Our clinical trials have to be published on clinicaltrials.gov. We actually were involved in starting another company called Vita Health, which is at vitahealth.vitahealth.care. I'm on the board there. They're showing, you know, remarkable success reducing suicide attempts using teletherapy and are partnered with Aetna and other health insurers. So that's another place where some of this work is quite relevant. People may want to check that out as well. We're actually that they're they're starting to partner with college campuses specifically for suicide risk. That website has some information uh, or do internet searches on some of their data and and we therapeutics. We're going to be coming out with more information more often now. So I think following us on LinkedIn is probably the place to do that. Right. Awesome. The one thing I tell all people, at least who want to be a senior leader anywhere is, and again, I wasn't great at this when I was in college. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking with the wisdom of great family members and friends who helped me understand myself over the years and colleagues, you know, aggressively try to know your own weaknesses, because especially if you want to build a company, you need to actually find partners to strengthen those weaknesses together. And that's the only way you're going to be able to solve tough problems. It's really easy to raise lots of money and get lots of press during the funding environment we had leading up to about a year ago, because people were throwing money at anyone with an idea. But the truth is building a good business is hard. And if you don't understand your weaknesses really in any setting and really embrace them and try to figure out how to plug those gaps, you'll be far worse off. And, you know, you'll lose your hair more quickly and be more stressed and sleep poorly and all that, all that stuff. Right. right. That's a great piece of advice for sure for anyone um, thinking about that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. No, thank you. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And special thanks go to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.